welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning, or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Um, It's great to be speaking again um, this morning. Um, We're back in our series again on practicing the way of Jesus after having a couple of guest speakers the last two weeks. Um, Practicing the Way of Jesus, you remember, is is an older series of ours, but we've just been dipping back into it um, for the last couple of weeks. Um, Practicing the Way of Jesus, we've been thinking and asking, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, to be with him, to have practices and rhythms that help us become more like him, and to do the things that he did, to look at his life as an example. But today is also uh, Pentecost, and I'm hoping that we can kind of tie these things in a little bit. Um, I don't know if about you, but I find um, the kind of points in the Christian calendar, like Pentecost, can sometimes get lost a little bit amongst some of the biggies, like Christmas and Easter and things like that. They kind of take up all the attention. But really, Pentecost, as uh, Fiona mentioned, is like the birthday of the church, no less vital to our story than these other celebrations. So hopefully we'll have a little think about what it means to practice the way of Jesus in the light of the events of Pentecost. But before we kind of dive straight into it. I'd like to uh, read another text from the Bible this morning from the Gospel of John. Uh, This is another lectionary reading for today. Uh, So we're going to be in John chapter 14, verses 8 to 17. So Philip, a disciple, says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, And they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Question for you, how do you change the world? It's a bit of a big question, maybe, to ask. If you were president of the world, if we were kind of living under one world government and you were just the one person in charge, what would you do to make the world a better place? So a guilty pleasure of mine is thinking quite meticulously through what I would ever do if I ever won the lottery. 
And I'm not talking like a few piddly millions here and there. I'm talking like if you want a solid like 100 million, something like that. You know, something you could do with... And I'd buy Oldham Athletic Football Club, for starters. Don't tell Rowan that. I'd turn it around for them. I'd get it out of the hands of the, of the current owners and get them back into football league status, bring back the glory days and all of that. But I'd also think about... I'd spend a lot of time thinking about, oh, what, would I, what else would I do with the money? And I think I'd become a kind of like covert philanthropist for the arts. Like, I'm, I'm an artist, and there are so many projects and so many people and so many creative things that I'd love to see happen in the world because in many ways, you know, just as with many things in our world today, money is drying up for some of these things. And I would love to just be able to give back to those areas. Um, buying artists' work, funding projects, donating to collections, being a kind of hidden um, patron for the people whose work I love. And so this is what I kind of end up fantasizing about if I ever think about, if I ever won the lottery. And I know, call me so sort of moral and virtuous, I end up thinking about these things and get excited about these things before I start thinking about, oh, you could actually like buy a new house and some cars and stuff like that. You know, all that stuff that you typically think when you win the lottery, what, this, what, what stuff would you buy for yourself? I kind of think about what are the exciting things that I could do that would bring good into the world. I don't know if that's just me or not, if that's the way you would think about it as well. You might, be not, might fantasize about winning the lottery as much as I do. But I think there's something interesting laid in, in that question for me, just this innate desire for many people, for many of us, to change the world, but to change it for good. For me, winning the lottery makes me excited, not because of all the expensive things I could buy for myself, but because I think I could do a lot of good with the money. It seems that there's something in us that deeply resonates with the idea that we could make the world a better place, surely. And for the disciples who were with Jesus for his earthly ministry, they probably had similar expectations. One of the reasons that they followed Jesus because they recognized somebody who was going to make the world a better place. They believed he was the Messiah, that he was the Son and the Savior, the Son of God. They thought that that meant he was going to make the world a better place for their own people, for the, for the, for the Jews, the people of God. And but what's interesting about the disciples, almost as characters in the Gospels through which we can see Jesus, is the ways in which they're constantly wrong about how exactly he's going to do it. One of the pictures that's really interesting, I think, as you read the Gospels is just how clueless sometimes they really are when it comes to who Jesus is and what his mission is. He's constantly subverting their expectations, which I think is fascinating because they were living up close and personal with the guy for, for several years of their lives. They were living with him, eating with him, spending time with him, traveling with him, listening to his every word. So when Jesus tells his disciples in the Gospels quite explicitly that he's going to be handed over to the authorities, that he must suffer at their hands, that he must be killed and raised back to life, Peter says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And this is the moment where Jesus famously responds, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter doesn't understand in our reading from John, Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And it's almost like Jesus is like, do you not know who I am? If you're seeing me, you're seeing the Father. If you're hearing my words, you're hearing the Father's words. Something just isn't clicking into place for the disciples when they ask questions like this. Maybe it's Peter, Philip thinks he's being 
humble and, and all spiritual by saying, if he just shows the Father, that'll be enough, not realizing who it is that he's speaking to. Another example, when Jesus and the disciples are on the way to Jerusalem, when Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem to go to the cross, James and John, two brothers, they come to Jesus with a request to let them sit at the right and left hand of the throne of Jesus when he comes into power, when he comes into glory. In other words, to kind of rule with him in these positions of power and authority. And Jesus tells them, you have no idea what you're asking. And the disciples, they get a little bit stubborn almost, and they come to the defense of James and John. And Jesus says to them, if you want to become great in the way that you're talking about, you have to be first servants, even slaves to others. These are just a few of many, many examples and moments in the gospel when the disciples just don't understand, not quite getting who Jesus is, not really quite understanding what's going on. Well, why is this? I think time and again, they're so wedded to their earthly, material, sometimes self-interested understandings that they fail to grasp the reality of what Jesus is all about, who he is, and what he's doing. And so he constantly subverts their ideas about how he's going to save the world. When Jesus tells them that he must die, Peter says, you can't die. You've got to be king. You've got to rule. You've got to live. You've got to, uh, you've got to bring a better world into existence. He doesn't understand that in order for Jesus to save the world, he's going to die and be raised back to life. When Philip asks Jesus to show them the Father, he fundamentally fails to understand the nature of who Christ is, one with the Father. He's only seeing with earthly eyes. He probably maybe even still thinks that Jesus is just going to be a very important prophet, a very important person, not the Son of God. And when James and John approach Jesus with their request to rule with him by his side, I think it's almost like they're asking for the power to make that world a better place, a better world that they think they can bring about according to their own design. And Jesus basically tells them, you have no idea what it is you're asking. Time and again, the disciples grasp the wrong end of the stick. They want Jesus to make the world a better place. They want to change the world with him. But they want to make the world into a better place that even they think is the right way to do it. And the truth is, isn't sometimes that how we all think? We all want to see a better world, but we would all come up with different ways about how we think that might be achieved. Sometimes these visions of how we might expect the world to be even conflict. We'd all spend that lottery money in different ways. The disciples believe Jesus is going to change the world, but they just fail to understand exactly how he's going to do it. So you can imagine the frustration and confusion for the disciples when Jesus leaves, when he goes to heaven after his resurrection. Today's Pentecost, but another often overlooked point in the Christian calendar happened last week which was Ascension Day, when we remember that Jesus ascended into heaven to take his throne. Jesus has given them his parting words and his encouragements, but the disciples in that moment are apparently left alone. So you put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. The story that you've been on so far, you've had a radically life-changing couple of years, you've toured around the place with a rabbi that you believe is the Messiah, you've seen countless miracles and healings, You've been in the middle of uh, kicking up a big stink politically. 
The man you follow has been arrested. You almost get arrested yourself. You see him get executed. Maybe your hopes are dashed. And as you were grieving, three days later, he shows up again, back from the dead. You have a bit of time hanging out with the resurrected Messiah. And then all of a sudden, he's whisking himself off away again into heaven, never to be seen again. And so if you follow the trajectory about how you imagine that story was going to go, the point at which Jesus leaves is the point at which everything should be climaxing to that classic ending. When Jesus becomes king and they all get important positions in government, the world becomes a better place and it's happily ever after. But sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. Why did Jesus have to leave? Why doesn't Jesus just put the world right there and then whilst he's still there with them? I think it's interesting, important to ask ourselves, what makes us so sure that we know how to make the world a better place? Sometimes we say, if it was just me in charge, then it would all be much better. If it was just me that had all that lottery money, I'd know how to make a better world out of it. I'd know how to spend it in a way that is good and right. But sometimes even war and genocides have all taken place to service someone else's vision of a better world. What makes us think that we know? And of course, for Peter and for many of the disciples, they're going to think that they're gonna be leading this better world with Jesus at his side. They're gonna overthrow the Romans, free their people. They They think they have a clue as to how this world will look. But Jesus tells the disciples why he has to leave. We read this earlier, earlier in our reading today from John's Gospel. He says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. I think sometimes when I hear these words, I fail to understand and fathom just exactly what Jesus is suggesting. I struggle sometimes to even fully believe what they mean, that whoever believes in Jesus will do even greater things than he, because when you ask in his name, he'll do it, and the Holy Spirit will come and empower you to do it. Just think about that. This is what Jesus is saying quite clear. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, when you ask in his name, greater things shall be done than even he performed on the earth. And I just think, I read those words and I just think, is that not completely nuts? So apparently that's why Jesus has to leave. Jesus leaves and ascends into heaven because he's changing and saving the world, but just not in the way that we would expect if we were the ones writing the story. And so we come to Pentecost. Pentecost is a Jewish festival and the disciples, they're gathered together And it's probably the 120 disciples, not just the 12 that we often think about. So maybe a gathering of about this size. 
And it seems they're waiting. Do they know what they're waiting for? And you wonder what the mood is as the disciples are gathered together. Are they apprehensive? Are they scared? Are they confused? Doubtful? Are they expectant? And so you can imagine if it's a gathering of probably about this size as we are gathered today, it's not really that difficult to imagine the variety of feelings and experiences that the disciples had because we are gathered here today with our own variety of feelings and experiences, our own doubts, confusions, anxieties, or expectations. There's this feeling, isn't there, that this longing that the world isn't right. And we have our hope in Jesus that he'll put it right. And yet, just like the disciples, we can be here wondering what our part is in it all. And so I wonder how you'd characterize our current moment. When you think about the world, when you kind of take stock for a moment, when you account for where we're at, especially as a, life, as a disciple of Jesus, when you think about what's going on in the world. And I was thinking about this, and I think my strongest sense, at the moment at least, is one of feeling quite overwhelmed. It feels like part of our world is inextricably linked to this collective sense that we're moving forward, at least. Progress. But of late, it feels like if we're moving forward, if we're backwards, if we're stuck in the same place, it feels like we're trying to wade through thick mud. A profound sense of just tiredness, deflation, resignation, just with everything that's happening in the world. I don't need to fill in the blank. And I wonder for the disciples, did it feel like a step towards some bright future when Jesus ascended into heaven? Or was there a sense of deflation, uncertainty about what comes next? And I wonder if we can feel a lot of affinity with that today. Pentecost is a point of celebration in the Christian calendar, but I think it's one that's marked with realism as well. The temptation for us when we think about the Holy Spirit descending with a mighty wind and tongues of fire, seeing a group of people fired up to step out in boldness and mission, preaching the gospel in a hostile context, being persecuted, even dying for their faith. It can be tempting for us to assume that therefore on a day like Pentecost, we have to drum up something within ourselves and get on that same level of excitement and energy. Like we come to church and we leave saying, come on, let's go on, let's take on the world, let's get full of energy and power, let's go and change the world, let's go and make it a better place. And a sermon at Pentecost, I think, can easily fall into that pattern. But Pentecost, I think, is remarkable, not for necessarily the sense of power and urgency and drive that the disciples suddenly experienced, but Pentecost, I think, is remarkable for the fact that a clueless bunch of people who had decided to follow Jesus were gathered together in all their cluelessness and their anxiety and their uncertainty. And it's only the Holy Spirit that comes and tears through that room with wind and fire. And something really clicks into place for the disciples at Pentecost. We see Peter get up in front of the crowd of people who've gathered wondering what all the commotion is about. 
And he delivers this sermon. And he delivers this sermon with just such a clarity that just begins to connect all the dots from the Old Testament, this prophecy from Joel, through to Jesus, this moment in which the Spirit is being poured out. And this is Peter saying all this. This is the one who's constantly getting the wrong end of the stick. This is the one who's constantly jumping the gun, who thinks he knows best and has it all figured out. The one who previously tried to pull Jesus up when Jesus is trying to say something about his plan, about what's gonna happen. And yet at this moment, God's spirit is being poured out. Here he is speaking with a truth and a boldness that in the end on that day results in thousands becoming converted to Christ. So we know for sure that this wasn't just Peter at work. What's different in this moment is the Holy Spirit. Suddenly for the disciples, it's as though the pieces just fall into place. And now they know who Jesus is. They know what he's doing. They know what their mission is. And so it strikes me as really encouraging about Pentecost is is the fact that in their cluelessness and in their anxiety, the disciples, they were just meeting together in an ordinary way, just as we are. Maybe there was apprehension. Maybe there was anticipation. But either way, they were waiting. They had no idea what to expect. They had no idea what to do. But they just knew they had to wait. And it seems to me that at a time like this, the idea that it's not about what we can muster up within ourselves to save the world, but about waiting on the Spirit of God sounds like good news, I think. Practicing the way of Jesus, walking in his way daily, using practices and rhythms to learn to become more like him, to be with him, is vital to the life of the disciple. It shapes our everyday life. It's what gives our life form, enables us to take each step day after day along the path that Jesus himself walked. But it's particularly at times like these when we feel like despite everything, we come to just the end of ourselves so often. And the disciples in many ways were at a loss. They required something more. And the Holy Spirit is that more. This is the advocate that Jesus promised, who lives with us and will be with us forever. And all the disciples did was wait. And the Holy Spirit came like a rushing wind. The Greek word for that is pneuma, meaning breath. And the same word in Hebrew throughout the Old Testament is ruach, the breath of God that hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation. God's spirit dwells within us like the breath in our lungs. And the tongues of fire, purifying, making us like pure gold, perfect in the sight of God by the spirit. And all they did was wait. I just want to read... um, this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's in his, um, one of his more famous works, Mere Christianity, um, a kind of very much an introduction to Christianity. And this is a passage about the Holy Spirit. He says this. The third person is called, in technical language, the Holy Ghost or the Spirit of God. Do not be worried or surprised if you find it or him rather vaguer or more shadowy in your mind than the other two. I think there is a reason why that must be so. In the Christian life, you're not usually looking at him. 
He's always acting through you. If you think of the Father as someone, <clears throat> as something out there in front of you, and of the Son as someone standing at your side, helping you to pray, trying to turn you into another son, then you have to think of the third person as something inside you or behind you. Perhaps some people might find it easier to begin with the third person and work backwards. God is love. And that love, through works, and that love works through men, especially through the whole community of Christians. But this spirit of love is from all eternity, a love going on between the Father and the Son. And now, what does it all matter? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us. Or putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in the dance. There is no other way for the happiness for which we were made. Good things, as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They're not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty, spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? Practicing the way of Jesus, entering into the pattern, taking our place in the divine dance. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is why Jesus ascended into heaven so we could be invited to participate in this way. Something clicked into place for the clueless disciples on that day of that festival. They thought they understood. They thought they knew who Jesus was going to be and how he was going to change the world and make it into the place they wanted to see. But Jesus had other plans. He wanted to invite them in by his Holy Spirit. And that is true today. I think especially when we're weary and tired, when the world feels like it just overwhelms, when it doesn't seem clear and the path isn't straight. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. Are you a clueless disciple this morning? Are you worn out, burned out? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Do you feel like sometimes there's only enough in the tank to do the bare minimum? There's only enough for you. Sometimes there's not enough for you. Never mind this crazy idea that you would actually go out and make the world a better place. The invitation today, I think, is just simply to wait. The Spirit is the one who breathes. The Spirit is the one who comes as a fire. The Spirit is the one who empowers. The Spirit is the one who takes ordinary clueless disciples desperately trying to faithfully walk in the way of Jesus and advocates for them helps them helps us change the world in Jesus name so why don't we pray together
Why don't we just take a moment um, as we come and just invite the Holy Spirit and wait. And then I'll pray for us. Here is a prayer for waiting. Dear Father God, thank you for sending Jesus, who is the great example of a man who walked in spirit and truth and who waited upon God. A man who, with a servant heart and a desire to do your will. Thank you for Jesus who throughout his life demonstrated himself to be a person that would wait on you in every situation and do only those things that he heard from you. Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that I too may learn how to wait on you and quietly rest in your will. Lord, I want to be emptied of self so that I may be filled with you. Thank you that Jesus is our worthy example as well as being our redeemer and savior. And because Jesus is now my life, I pray that I may live as he did, a life that is led by the spirit, a life that walks in spirit and grace, a life that seeks to do your will a life that waits in patient expectation on you. For to you belongs all power and wisdom and majesty and strength, and without you I can do nothing. Help me to follow the example of Jesus. And it's in his name.